For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When God communicates, it's always clear, but it can be very subtle. Think sort of about this very, very familiar scene, right? The Magi coming to adore Jesus, about uh, how subtle and almost strange it appears to be. So not long after the Son of God has taken on flesh and been born of Mary, the maker of the universe orchestrates this small, strange, cosmic event. Uh, it's the Greek word there, star, just means anything in the sky that's not the sun or the moon. Um, and you know, you who know me know I can get kind of nerdy about these things. I've done a fair amount of research on this little star. Uh, I'm convinced it was a comet, but the Bible doesn't specify exactly. Um, I th well, let me say, because the Magi say they saw it rise at its rising in the east. Right? So think, if you remember your geography class, you've got Israel here and Bethlehem and Judah, and Persia is over here. So if something rose in the east, it wasn't pointing in the right direction. It was actually the exact wrong direction. It required the interpretation of the wise men. The wise men actually were certainly astronomers. That was kind of the chief wisdom and knowledge of Persia. So God sort of orchestrates this comet to come at this particular time. It probably aligned with some star sequence or planet sequence that the Persians understood to signify Judah. The Magi interpret it. And this strange comet lining up with some other thing in the sky was the thing God used to communicate for the first time in human history to the Gentiles that a savior had been born to the world. It's pretty subtle, right? Um, of course, this is the deep significance of Epiphany that the very first people to adore Jesus were, of course, Mary and Joseph. And then the angels called the shepherds, as we heard in the Christmas gospel, and these Jewish shepherds nearby, notably the poor, right? Shepherds were poor, are the, are the second adorers of Jesus. And then right, on, right after them comes the Magi, Gentiles, non-Jews, showing right from the beginning that Jesus has come to be the, the true King of Israel, but much more than that, to be also the King and Savior of the Gentiles, us, right? The Magi are the first fruits. They went first in the path that we all follow. I'm not aware of any of you having Jewish blood. Uh, so as Gentiles, the Magi, uh, carved the way for us. Um, it's interesting that God, sort of, who controls every atom of the universe, cues this comet to come, and it's the meaning of that was caught only by a very select few of people, and it was those few who were looking for it, who were wanting and, and actually longing to find God. How do I know that? Um, okay, kind of putting Bible pieces together. Um, okay, Bible trivia. 500 years before Jesus was born, who was installed as the, as the chief of the Magi? Daniel. I heard someone say it. Yeah, Daniel was the chief of the Magi, right? And in Daniel chapter 9, in this prophecy of sevens or of weeks, Daniel prophesies, he says, in 483 years' time, 69 times 7, um, the anointed one is going to come. So 500 years before these Magi show up in, around baby Jesus, Daniel, head of the Magi, gives this prophecy, 
And then lo and behold, at the time of the prophecy, the Magi show up. So what we kind of, when we put these two pieces together, what it means is for almost 500 years in Persia, modern day Iran, these Magi were sort of remembering there was this godly chief of Magi who gave us this prophecy that the Messiah would come. And then it's confirmed by this signal in the sky. And so the Magi set out to go see for themselves the fulfillment of this prophecy. They'd been faithfully waiting. Um, it's really interesting to me that, of course, hundreds of thousands of people would have seen this comet, but only a very small group would have understood its meaning, right? Those who studied astronomy, the Magi, and then in those, only those who really sort of were faithful and had invested in this prophecy of Daniel, only this very small group, maybe even as few as three, right? The Bible doesn't say exactly how many wise men came, but tradition has it as three for the gifts. Maybe just a very few people. What a subtle communication that God gave us. Those three um, set out. The three who were looking for that sign in the first place, who longed for its fulfillment earnestly enough that they would make a several hundred mile journey across wilderness to go see it. And the Lord confirms their journey. I love this, that it's clear when the Magi are talking with Herod, at that point there's nothing happening in the sky. Herod's like, well, when did you see it? You know, they couldn't say, you know, there it is. So they're going along. And then as they're journeying away from here, the comet reappears. And that's what comets do, right? They have a period of visibility. So this comet appears, the same one, the scripture says. And this time, it's directly overhead. It's in the opposite side of the sky. So they just march towards it to find Bethlehem. The Lord confirms their faith, their, their pursuit of himself uh, midway through their journey. So God communicated clearly, but it was only meaningful to those who were looking for it. It sounds familiar, right? Seek and you shall find. It's one of the great themes of the new covenant. And what I want to offer you this morning is that in many ways, we're still in the same situation today. God has communicated with great clarity, but very few actually get the message. The, uh, the stars that we have today, metaphorically speaking, uh, is the, the lesser light of nature and the greater light of the scriptures. And these are two things that many, many people have looked at, and yet how many have really found the true meaning and have really met the maker and the testifier to both of these things? What I mean to say is um, the, the poet William Blake, uh, a couple hundred years ago, who's not often a trustworthy guide, but he said one time, he was speaking to a scientist, and he said, um, when you look at the sun, um, you see a burning ball of helium converting to hydrogen, or whatever way, hydrogen to helium, whichever way that is, you know, uh, combusting at so-and-so millions of degrees centigrade, you know, and then to optically it's about the size of a guinea. When I look at the sun, I see countless multitudes of angels crying, holy, holy, holy. I love that different picture, how many people look at nature and actually fail to see the God behind nature, the God who made the order and the beauty of nature. The study of science doesn't necessarily lead you to trust in God, otherwise all scientists would be Christians, would that they were. Romans chapter 1 says that nature is sufficient to point us to the fact that there is a single God behind these things to whom we'll give account. 
The scripture itself testifies that it also is the perfect light that shines, um, the perfect light of knowledge, the true knowledge of who God is. Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect and restores the soul. But how many people, how many non-believers or, or maybe half-believers like Herod, Herod's a terrible warning to, to, against half-belief, right? How many non-believers or half-believers have turned the pages of the Bible and gotten nothing? It's the law of the Lord. It's perfect. It could revive the soul, right? It's perfect for training and righteousness, and yet many people read it and get nothing. What's the sort of X factor there? What, what makes the Bible restorative or not? It's whether we come spiritually hungry, spiritually longing, whether we really like the Magi, are sort of looking out. You know, this is sort of the discipline we practice through Advent. Not something to be done for four weeks only, but to deepen for the rest of the year the sense of watching for Christ, longing for Him, cracking the Bible open for quiet time and saying, Lord, I really want to hear from you. Please speak to me. Rather than just, ah, oh, I should probably read some pages of this because I'm a good Christian, right? Um, I actually think, in sort of a paradox, this is really the one thing that we can bring to God, right? We talk about sort of this hymn, like the Magi bringing gifts. The paradox is what we really bring rightly is our lack. It's our longing, right? You only long for something that you don't already have. And I think this is a, gives us sort of a symbolic interpretation of the gifts that the Magi bring. And with this, I'll close. Um, I think... The giving of gold um, is a very simple symbol for wealth. But in general, the Lord is saying time and time again in his parables, it's in giving up material things to God that we kind of make space for our hunger for spiritual things. Um, I, I never used to fast, for, even though many years of hearing sermons about fasting, until I heard a preacher one time say, the reason we fast is because we're hungry for something more than food that it's actually a hunger that we've got to make space for. That in we demonstrate our earnestness to God um, by what we do, our stewardship of our material possessions. Frankincense, the scriptures often use incense, uh, especially in the book of Revelation, as a picture of our prayers, right? What we come to God is our, our deeds of sort of stewardship, our, our prayers, our verbal prayers, set our, our expressions to God, that we do want to know him and know him more and be more fully converted to him. That's the frankincense that we bring. And lastly, our myrrh, sort of, myrrh is the ointment of true devotion, right? It's what those who anointed Jesus or went to anoint Jesus' body in the tomb, uh, it's the thing they brought with them, right? Those who would stick, stay loyal to Christ even into the worst case situation, even when all is as bleak as could be to stay loyal to Christ. That true devotion, I think that's what myrrh signifies. Say, well, no matter what happens in my outward life, no matter how difficult things are spiritually, I'm sticking with Jesus. I think that's what myrrh symbolizes. So I think as we remember again the Epiphany this year, um, I invite you again to, to join with our Gentile forebears, the Magi, um, in, in bringing these earnest gifts to Christ, these, these, lack, these things that we lack actually. Our, our true longings to him. Um, and also in that, to be really listening to what he's communicated, to be looking both in nature when we're out on a walk, maybe at a nice park, um, when we're reading the scriptures, to be really looking, Lord, why did you make it this way? 
Lord, what are you trying to say to me through this passage? And have that sort of vigilance, which is what the Lord actually used and rewarded in, with the Magi in letting them see Jesus, baby Jesus, face to face. Our hope, of course, that the Lord became full grown and died and is risen. But our hope is still that we would see him face to face, right? In the next life when we come before him. Amen.